to chapter 8, verse 1. Now let's go at it again. Yahweh told Joshua, don't be afraid and don't panic. Take the whole army and you march against Ai. See, I'm handing over to you the king of Ai, along with his people, city and land. Do to Ai and its king what you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may plunder its goods and cattle and set an ambush behind the city. Now this time, God talks. Remember, the first time it was all Joshua. You go out, you spy, you only take the part of the city. They never went to God. And they never asked him what to do. Now God is clearly commanding them what to do. And then the other time, they only took part of the army, which breaks down the unity. They were supposed to conquer the whole... They, God made a big deal, and they made a big deal, about how the Reubenites and the Gadites and Manasseh had to come over and join them, lest the, and they already conquered their land. But they, it was all about unity, doing it together. And now Joshua is breaking down that unity by just sending a part of the soldiers. God comes in now and he says, now you can go because I said so. Now there's no sin in your tribe. And now you will send the entire army because it's about unity. Here's the real question. What would have happened if Joshua would have immediately gone to God and said, are we allowed to go to the next city? And how do you want us to do it? All those men who died at Ai would be alive. Maybe Achan would have seen a different example and repented. Who knows what could have happened if Joshua just said, what do you want me to do next, Yahweh? But instead, he began to act like the commander of Yahweh's army. And even though he is Yahweh's image, he has no right to step outside the will of Yahweh. And we're going to see this in the book of Judges. We're going to see this in the book of Judges. So Joshua and the whole army marched against Ai, and Joshua selected 30,000 brave warriors and sent them out at night. He told them, Look, set an ambush behind the city. Don't get, go very far from the city. All of you be ready. I and the troops who are with me will approach the city, and when we come out to fight us like before, we will retreat with them. And they will attack us until we lured them from the city, for they will say they are retreating from us like before. We'll retreat from them. And then you rise up from your hiding place and seize the city. And Yahweh your God will hand it over to you. And when you capture the city, set it on fire. Do as Yahweh says. See, I have given your orders. Joshua sent them away. And they went to the hiding place west of Ai between Bethel and Ai. And Joshua spent the night with the hen army. Now Joshua uses the defeat to his advantage this time. Hey, we've already ran away before, so we're going to do it again. <coughs> And this time when we run away and they follow us, you come out and cut off their path back to the city and we'll attack them and sandwich them, flank them. Here's the other thing that's interesting. This is by far the hardest thing for us to grasp too. Not in a moral harshness sense, but in like, oh my gosh, I can't figure this out. At the same time that Joshua was not supposed to do anything without God first allowing him to do it and give him commands, at the same time, Joshua is using his brain. And the gifts and the skills that God gave him. The creativity and the strategy that God gave him. God doesn't want you just mindlessly, robotically obeying him either. God wants you to join him. And all throughout the Bible, we see a God who creates the entire world. And then he says, Adam and Eve, I'm going to make you the image. And I want you to join me in finishing the creation of the world. And by creation, I mean expanding the garden. Not like bringing things into existence. I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, to be the gospel in living color. 
And then I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and you're going to join me in spreading that gospel and witnessing, even though I don't need you. And even though a lot of you throughout history are going to screw it all up and make it even harder, God loves delegating. God is a relational God. God wants to join you in the same way that you want your children to join you when you're doing things and projects. And the reality is we see this complicated human responsibility, human choice, human creativity and skill and talent partnered with the absolute sovereignty and determination of Yahweh. And we do ourselves an injustice when we try to separate it into a predestination or free choice. It's both. Just like I have no idea how Jesus is God and human without mixture and without separation. You just got to put that in your theological pipe and smoke it and deal with it. (laughs) Don't try to reconcile it. Just embrace it. And so they did. The very next morning they did that. And once again, the battle is very brief. Very little discussion. Chapter 8, verse 10. Bright and early the next morning, Joshua gathered the army, and he and the leaders of Israel marched at the head of it to Ai. And all the troops that were with him marched up and drew near the city. They camped north of Ai in the other side of the valley, and he took 5,000 men and set up an ambush west of the city from Bethel and Ai. And the army was in position in the main army north of the city and near the guard west of the city. That night, Joshua went into the midnight middle of the valley. And when the king of Ai saw Israel... He and his whole army quickly got up the next day and went out to fight Israel at the meeting place near Arabah. But he did not realize men were hiding behind the city. And Joshua and all of Israel pretended to be defeated by them, and they retreated along with the way to the desert, and all the reinforcements and Ai were ordered to chase them. They chased Joshua, and they lured them away from the city. No men were left in Ai or Bethel, and they all went out after Israel, and they left the city wide open and chased Israel. Yahweh told Joshua, Hold out toward Ai, the cursed sword in your hand, for I am handing the city over to you. So Joshua held out toward Ai, the cursed sword in his hand. And when he held out his hand, the men waiting in the ambush rose up quickly from their place and attacked. Now this shows you that God is in approval of Joshua's plan. Because the God telling him to point out the sword is the signal for the plan to go into action. This is God and Joshua partnering. Joshua came up with a plan, and God amended the plan by giving him the signal to go away, go ahead with it. They re-entered the city, captured it, and immediately set it on fire. When the many of Ai turned around, they saw the smoke from the city ascending into the sky, and were so shocked they were unable to flee in any direction. In the meantime, the men who were retreating to the desert turned against their pursuers. And when Joshua and all of Israel saw that the men in the ambush had captured the city, and that the city was going up in smoke, they turned around and struck down the men of Ai. At the same time, the men of, who had taken the city came out to fight, and the men of Ai were trapped in the middle. And Israel struck them down, leaving no survivors a refuge. A refuge. But they captured the city of Ai and brought it to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai who had chased them toward the desert, they all fell by the sword. All of Israel returned to Ai, and they put a sword to it. Twelve thousand men and women died that day, including all the men of Ai. And Joshua kept holding out his curved sword until Israel had annihilated all who lived in Ai. But Israel did plunder the cattle and the goods of the city in accordance with Yahweh's orders to Joshua. Joshua burned Ai and made it permanently uninhabited mound. It remains that way to this very day. 
the very once we start chapter eight, God says, "Okay, go in the city, and now you can take everything that you want." Once again, the irony here is if Achan had just waited. But at the same time, they were allowed to keep the city originally. But now they have to burn the city as a further atonement for the sin of... So they are allowed to have partial city, city burn, but keep the spoils. Eventually, they're allowed to keep everything. What is interesting here is God is doing reversal. You expect the Israelites to be these incredibly faithful people who God favors, and yet it is Rahab the prostitute who demonstrates incredible faith and the one that God favors because of her faith. And it's the Israelites who demonstrate a lack of faith, end up melting in fear, and get dealt with by God. Achan becomes a foil. And a foil is a literary term where you set up somebody who is the opposite of somebody else in order to emphasize them. If you like put Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee next to each other, they're both going to look pretty strong. But if you took like Bruce Lee and put him next to Urkel, <laughs> Urkel is such a complete opposite from Family Matters. You want to like go on your phone and Google that if you don't know. He is such a complete extreme opposite that Chuck Norris next to Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee doesn't look as strong as when he's next to Urkel. Achan becomes a foil to Rahab to really emphasize how amazing her faith was and how drastically different. And here's the other point it's also making. Being a true Israelite has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has to do with faith. Because we have a woman who's been marked for destruction and has no ethnic connection at all to Abraham. And yet she becomes a part of the covenant community by faith. And we have a man who is born into Israel, and not just Israel, but the tribe of Judah, the most prominent, most elite, most, if anybody is going to be righteous, it's going to be Judah. And yet he is showing a complete lack of covenant faithfulness. And these are the kind of stories that Paul is going to hang his hat on when he says, the true Israelite are those who have faith. And this is what reinforces when Jesus says, look, you think you're special and you're chosen, you're going to be saved because you're descendants of Abraham? I can make descendants of Abraham out of these rocks. Yes, ethnically, they're going to be the people that God is going to use as a mode to give birth to the Messiah and carry the gospel. But the true people of God are not ethnic. They are faith. The righteous will live by faith. And this is very important for you to understand. As we deal with modern-day Israel today, though I do believe that God will one day bring a revival and bring many of the Jews back into the faith, that is not Israel. Israel are those who have faith. And this has been clearly, clearly revealed. When we get to the prophets, the prophets beat that drum more than any other point. Those who have faith are going to be the new Israel the new Jerusalem. It's not a physical and it's not ethnic. It's a spiritual community of people by faith. And God's desire is that all the nations be in it. God is using these two stories as a contrast to completely alter your perception of what it really means to be a part of the covenant. And this is why it's very wrong when we get to like people... In Jeremiah, 
And they're like, well, God's not going to destroy us. We're the chosen ethnic people. And I could just hear the prophet say, did you not read the story of Rahab and Achan? Or when Nehemiah's like driving people away and say, get out of here. You're not a pure-blooded Jew. You're only a half-Jew. We don't want you. Holy crap, Nehemiah, did you not pay attention to these stories? And when the Pharisees are like, oh, thank God I'm not a woman or a dog or a Gentile, because I am an ethnically pure Jew, and that's why I'm going to heaven. This is going to be happening over, and we think the same thing, too. Oh, at least I'm not like that person who just came to the church looking and acting like that. I grew up in the faith. And God is warning against that. God is warning against that. So they burned it. He hung the king of Ai on a tree, leaving him exposed until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered that his corpse be taken down from the tree. They threw it down in the entrance of the city, and the gate erected over it a large pile of stones. It remains this very day. Now, hanging people on trees is not an uncommon thing in the ancient world. It's a reminder to everybody this is what happens. But God said, according to law, you're not allowed to keep somebody there longer than a day. And so before the sun set, they had to take it down. Because as much as God also punishes sin harshly, he does not allow for the mutilation and the torture and the disgracing humiliation of the image of God. It's one thing to execute the image of God. It's another thing to degrade it and humiliate it and torture it and mutilate it. And that's what God never, ever allows. And so to have the body on the wall for a few hours is one thing, but to let it sit there for weeks and rot is a completely different thing. The reality is God has them taken down. So Joshua is obeying the law here by taking him down. But notice that the exact same phrase is when they killed Achan, they buried him and they piled rocks on him. When they took the kings, who are horrible, evil Canaanite kings, and they buried them, they piled rocks on them. And the point is, the fate of both was the same. Those who live outside the law will die, and the righteous will live by faith. It doesn't matter whether you're in the community or out of the community. It doesn't matter whether you're a horrible, evil, powerful king or a normal, everyday normal person. If you say, it's called a high-handed sin, and it means that. You shake your fist at God and you say, screw you. If that's your heart, then the fate of all is death. And that's the point that God is making. Only those who can live are those who are in the covenant community. And the only people who are in the covenant community are those who love their Lord, their God, with all their heart, mind, and strength, and soul. This is Deuteronomy practically lived out. Deuteronomy made all these theological points. Now you're seeing the application. Now you're seeing the application. Verse 30, Then Joshua built an altar for Yahweh God of Israel on Mount Ebal, Ebal, just as Moses, Yahweh's servant, had commanded the Israelites. As he described in the law scroll of Moses, it was made with the uncut stones untouched by the iron tool. They offered burnt sacrifices on it and sacrificed tokens of peace. 
There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua inscribed on the stones a duplicate of the law written by Moses. And all the people, rulers and leaders and judges were standing on either side of the ark in front of the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of Yahweh. Both resident foreigners, native Israelites were there. Half the people stood on Mount Gerizim and the other half stood in front of Mount Ebal. Ebal. As Moses, Yahweh's servant, had previously instructed for them to do in a formal blessing ceremony. Then Joshua read out loud all the words of the law, including the blessings and the curses, just as they were written in the law scroll. Joshua read aloud every commandment Moses had given them before the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and resident foreigners who lived among them. Back in Deuteronomy 27, God commanded Israel, when you go into the land, there's two hills there. Mount Abal and Mount Gerizim. You're to take half the tribes and stand on one, and the other half of the tribes stand on the other, and you're to put Levi in the middle of the valley. And you're to read the curses and the blessings. On Mount Gerizim were all the sons of Leah and Rachel's sons, minus Reuben, who had been cursed by God, or by Jacob, and Zebulon, who was the youngest. So all of Rachel's kids and all of Leah, except for Reuben and Zebulon. And they're to stand there, and they're basically to announce the curses. All of that is found in Deuteronomy 28. If you want good bedtime reading, read Deuteronomy 28. It's all the bad things that are going to happen to you if you sin. So then the other two wives, Zilpha and Bilhah, they're all their kids, including Reuben and Zebulon, are to stand the other hill. Now remember, there's 13 tribes total. Because Jacob had 12 sons, but then he adopted Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, up into it, and they replaced Joseph. So Joseph got doubled through his two sons. So there's 13. So one tribe, Levites, they're the priests, they stand in the middle with the Ark of the Covenant. And then the six tribes on one hill and the six tribes on the other, and they, one hill pronounces the blessings and the other one the curses. And what they're doing is they're verbalizing it. It's one thing to say, oh, okay, I know that I'll... It's another thing to read them all out with your own mouth as an entire community. And, they, and what it shows is after all these years, Joshua's faithful to do. And now they clear, this generation clearly knows what is expected of them and what will happen. And then they make a sacrifice, and this entire generation joins in and says, yes, we want to be a part of the covenant. We want to be a part of the covenant. That is pretty much the majority of the conquests. Now, that's only two cities. And there's many, many, many other cities to conquer. So technically, what is yet to come is the majority of the conquests. However, this is all the stories. When we get to the rest of the stories, most of them are very brief. And all God really does is give you great detail on Jericho and Ai. And from this point on, it's just going to be very quick. There's going to be a brief story with the Gibeonites. But other than that, most of the narrative of the Canaanite conquest is over with. Because the idea is, you already know what to expect. If it's quick and easy, they were faithful. If it's not quick and easy, then there's sin involved. God is giving you the template of what a successful and a not successful conquest is.